Hello and welcome to Slut Plus, hosted today by me instead of Julia Turner, who I feel like brings an aplomb to this pronunciation of Slut Plus that I can't replicate, even though I supposedly know French. Um, today, we're going to answer a listener question that I believe came to us through uh, Facebook. Laura, can you read us the entire question? Sure. It comes from a listener named Liza Pringle. And the question is, in terms of total time and cumulative comfort, what has made the biggest difference when you needed it the most, lyric or text? When did words suddenly save you? I love this question, even though I think those are two completely separate questions, which make me ask a lot of other questions. Like by lyric, does she is she is she contrasting song lyrics with the music of a song, or is she talking about lyric poetry? Right? When did words save you? And then the question about lyricism are, are kind of different. So I think we should maybe just pick and choose and answer this question in whatever way it inspires us. Um, but I'm sure that we can all come up with some moment in which words saved us, although it might be too private to get into, even in the intimate context of slut abuse. Uh, Stephen, do you want to start? Sure. I mean, I interpret this question as being between song lyrics for pop or rock songs or whatever and um, and and things that you read in books. I don't know. It's hard to answer because one does feel inevitably that one was kept alive by, you know, rock and roll or hip hop or the words of pop artists when one was an adolescent, when you're maximally vulnerable to the world and your identity is, you know, is kind of mercurial and, you know, you know, as it could be, you know, but also kind of horrible and painful encumbrance. You turn to pop music typically as an adolescent, not really to literature, which feels still like homework. But I think as you get older, I mean, you know, I can only, I, I mean, music, I derive, you know, like the Nietzsche quote, which is, you know, a bit of a fortune cookie, but I still think is true that without music, life would be a mistake. I mean, I, I do think like one couldn't persist as an, you know, existing being in a world without music. It's just unthinkable. Um, so I would say that, that, that music does have this power to keep you alive and centered and connected, you know, to the world. But um, but as between lyrics um, of pop songs and um, and literature, as you get older, you know, I mean, they're just they're really though they're those writers that you just return to over and over and over again. I mean, they just don't ever exit your life in a way. I mean, the, and the names are not an obvious. I mean, obviously, you'll connect with some that are less obvious, but at the core is still, you know, is still Shakespeare, Montaigne, you know. Robert Frost, Jane Austen, you know, Emily Dickinson, which we, you know, talked about a little bit in the endorsements. But I mean, just, you just, they're going to be there forever. And they, they bear returning to over and over and over again. And I don't know. I mean, I just, I hate to be Calvinist about it, but something about sitting alone and reading, you know, is just, it just, it just is kind of, as a default, it's just a kind of spiritual activity. I know that's corny, but it really is. Sitting alone and reading is so recent an addition to the human repertoire, the human behavioral repertoire. I mean, it, you know, there's there's the English philosopher Gilbert Ryle, as an aside in his great book, The Concept of Mind, says that it appears that sitting alone and reading silently to oneself as a human behavior is no older than four to 500 years, right? And yet, corresponds with our with the modern way of thinking of ourselves as um 
you know, a spiritually vouchsafed being in a fallen world, right? I mean, I guess I'm just going on and on like a crazy person. But <laughs> this is all fantastic. But I want to ask you to drill I, down I just have to and say, tell me I a moment, a that, moment that it saved your life. Oh, fuck, moment. Um, or just, or not even one moment, but like a, a poem that you always return to. Like, let's say you're just, you're really having a, sh- a shitty time with whatever, right? Like, what is the text or the song that you're going to return to? It makes you feel like a spiritually vouchsafed being. <laughs> God, my what a fucking phrase. wanker. <laughs> I mean, I, there are so many to go back to. I mean, I would say, you know, um, I mean, I, I just a huge Philip Larkin head. I mean, the poem Church Going, you know, it, to me is just a devastatingly beautiful poem about not being able to find solace in the, you know, the actual physical church that you go into and yet you do in spite of yourself. I mean, ah, that's just an incredible poem. I mean, you know, there's a poem by Anne Sexton called, um, I think it's a letter to a special friend maybe, uh, that I first discovered as a, you know, completely fucked up adolescent and it just never has left me. I mean, you know, there, there are many of them. You think, oh, fuck, I'm not alone. I mean, it's the, what the, what's funny about reading is it is the ultimate lonely activity, right? I mean, essentially, reading is sitting alone and, and you're in the theater of your own mind and the mind of the writer. But it's also the thing that makes you feel least alone, I think, right? Which is why it sort of saves your life over and over again. Okay, I've nattered on long enough. Done. Oh, that was wonderful. I loved it. All right, now now to you, Laura. And you can interpret this in any way you want, because I think I'm actually going to go with song lyrics. So if you want to go anywhere with lyric or poetry or words, go there. I feel like I could answer this question in two ways. I mean, for me, I agree with a lot of what Steve said about how text was was the most formative for me. It anchored me the most when I was sort of, you know, coming of age intellectually, if you will, and figuring out what I thought and how I, you know, processed the world. Um the first – this is actually not how I was going to answer the question, but hearing Steve talk about Larkin, I thought of the first short story I ever read by Gabriel Garcia Marquez when I was, was in high school. And it was um, – it was the translation is the handsomest drowned man in the world. And I looked it up to sort of recapture that first moment of discovering the story And the first line I found in this – there's this one translation I found online was the first children who saw the dark and slinky bulge approaching through the sea let themselves think it was an enemy ship. And Garcia Marquez just has this like uncanny knack for disorienting you in his opening passages for sort of – I mean that this how magical realism works obviously but sort of throwing you into the – otherworldly mechanics of of something and making it of sort of some scenario and making it feel utterly mundane even though it's so strange. And in this case, it was a dead body had washed up on the shore of this village um, and it was all about how the townspeople sort of responded to this corpse and, and, and projected their hopes and desires on it and dreamed of what they sort of thought he was. I just remember reading the story and feeling entirely recalibrated. Um, and that was, I think, the first moment when I realized that uh, that words could do that. This is such like an earnest and corny <laughs> yeah, question to answer, uh, but it's so down. good, so true. Um, I just read the first line of a Gabriel Garcia Marquez story I read in high school. Um, you know, it's just occurring to me that this whole show is about earnestness and sincerity in a way, right? The James so, Corden, we all love it because right. he's he's authentic and he means it. Thank you, Liza Pringle, for uh, for uh, for opening us up yeah. like this. Um, 
Yeah, so I think that that's one moment. The, the other story that it occurred to me is a moment when I did a school presentation as a third grader and forgot all my lines. And it was, it was a Dred Scott presentation. I was pretending to be Dred Scott as a little suburban Jewish girl, as one does. You, uh, you know, give a speech in the voice of Dred Scott. And I uh, forgot my line. I, the teacher asked me to perform this monologue in front of an uh, upper school class who was learning about Dred Scott. I was so excited, so nervous. And I forgot everything, forgot my lines, stared dumbfounded at the class, cried in the hallway afterward as my third grade teacher sort of patted my head and said she was sorry she put you know too much pressure for a third grader, was really scary. And then afterwards she gave me a blank diary and I kept it from third grade through – you know, I still write in it every few months when I go home. I have entries from third grade through <laughs> high school, college, years after college and it somehow hasn't filled up yet but – that diary was so meaningful to me. So that was the that was a story about when words oh, failed me, that's but also kind of when well, they it's just almost like the absence of words saved you there, right? And then right. she gave you a blank book to put in your own words. No, does your teacher know that? Have you told her that you story? No, I'm I'm not sure, but I think she was. It was such one of those lovely little teacher gestures that just stay with you. I mean, it was so. It's amazing how being a third grade teacher you can have such an effect on the arc of someone's life. But it was it was so fortifying and moving. Uh, that she that she gave me that. Oh, book. you should find her and tell her I that. Know. That would totally make her. Mrs. Day. Gates, thanks, Mrs. Gates. Maybe she's out there listening. Right, thanks, she's Mrs. definitely Gates. listening. Her slate plus. Okay, so because this question is is dual and it asks about lyrics and it also asks about words, I'm going to do uh, one of each. I think I may have already mentioned both of these things in either endorsements or the context of some conversation, but too bad. They were important parts of my life. So one of them is going to be the Deborah Eisenberg short story called Days. Um, It originally appeared in her collection, Transactions in a Foreign Currency. And... uh, Although the story never explicitly says this, it seems to be a story about a woman recovering from either depression, alcoholism, a breakup, all three of those things together. It's just it starts off in a really bad place where the protagonist, who I believe is a first person story, um, is like lying in bed drinking vodka and then throwing the glass against the wall. You know, that's the place that she's in. And uh, and then it's just sort of the story of her very slowly crawling out of this bad place through working out in a gym. And it's such a great story of somebody working out in a gym in an utterly unempowered, uncrossfit, un sort of macho way. She's scared to get in the pool because it's too cold. Some whole days she goes to the gym and she all she does is put a toe, toe in the pool and then go back home again. She's easily humiliated by complete strangers who she thinks are judging her as she goes to the gym each day. And uh, it's really comical, but also very, very psychologically acute in its kind of understanding of what it is to recover and bring yourself out of a bad place. And by the end of the story, when you see that she's just sort of okay, she's She's not great. She's not on top of the world. She's not, you know, rocky running up the steps of the Philadelphia Library. She's just okay and she's going to be all right. It's just it's an incredible ending to the story. And Deborah Eisenberg is one of my favorite writers anyway. I'm not even a short story person and I love everything she writes. So Deborah Eisenberg's days, that's one of the times that words saved me. Not because I was so bad off that I was throwing vodka bottles against the wall. But yeah, I mean, everybody has 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 felt in that dark of a place. And I think that story really helped me to, to see that there would be an end to that. Uh, and another is a work that I discovered around the same time, actually, in my turbulent early 20s when I was running around creating heartbreak for myself in all kinds of ways that I probably didn't need to. Um, but one thing that really helped pull me out of a bad spot 
was Katie Lang's album Ingenue, which I guess came out in the early 90s. And it seems to be a breakup album of hers. It's one of those thematic, you know, book sort of albums in which all the songs seem to be telling a story that's also in a way kind of an arc of recovery and getting your soul back after having it dashed to bits. And uh, Katie Lang's voice is just so extraordinary. I don't know if she wrote the songs or co-wrote the songs, but the feeling of the songs on it are all kind of of a piece. And yet all building, sort of building to this kind of emotional climax. And there was just a period, a bad period in my life, and graduate school was going badly. I'd done through a bad breakup. I was just miserable at essentially everything I was living. And I would put that album on every night when I got home from school, work, what I was doing, and uh, and just sort of, I mean, I guess it would be what the millennial bloggers now call self-care, radical self-care. My radical self-care consisted of just dancing alone to Katie Lang's Ingenue and singing along. So thank you, Katie Lang. That's definitely one of the times that lyric saved me. I like the idea of you creating heartbreak for yourself. <laughs> it's great. Well, thank you, Liza Pringle, for bringing us all so deep inside ourselves. That was a great Slate Plus segment. And, uh, and thank you, Slate Plus listeners, for listening and supporting the journalism that we do. And we'll talk to you next week.